Well, good morning to you in this beautiful fall morning. Uh, as we begin and we're continuing through Proverbs, I got a question for you to think about as we start this morning. And it's, uh, do you consider yourself a talker? So uh, my guess is there's a few different categories in the room. Uh, some of us in the room would just go ahead and raise a hand and said, yep, I'm a talker. That's what everybody would say about me. Some of us try to think, no, I'm not much of a talker, but just ask their friends and they'd probably say, yeah, they're, they're, they're one of the talkers. And a few of us would, would probably put us in the camp where, eh, not really, not much of a talker, big groups, especially you get me in a few small, small groups of people and it's a little bit of a different story. Well, regardless of how you see yourself coming this morning, the researchers at the University of Arizona and Texas They've come to the conclusion that we're all talkers, and here's they've done this. Now, there's you can go Google, you know, how how much do we talk in a day, and you'll get some different thoughts. But this was actually a systematic recording of the total daily word output of both men and women, uh, of a sizable number of people. And this is what they found, that both men and women on average were about the same, which was probably, there's a whole lot of theories on why we think we're different, but uh, they found about the same. And the average was this, 16,000 words a day. If you walked into this room this morning, you fit within this range probably of 16,000 words a day. Interesting, they, they, uh, a few, there was one person that scored 47,000 words a day. So I, I don't know who that person may be in this room, but on the pushing that in. And then the lowest was 500. So you can see that's a pretty big range. But the average was 16,000 words a day. So if you just take that thought there, so in a year, we would average what, five, over 5.8 million words. How does that land on you when you think about that? Well, the wake of a boat is the kind of the trail, the turbulence it leaves in the water as it comes through. And I'd love for us to begin this morning to think about what's the wake, what will be the wake of your 16,000 words tomorrow? What does it leave behind? What, this year, what will the wake of our 5.8 million words be? Proverbs has a lot to say about this wake. It has a lot to say about how we, how we understand it, where it comes from, and its effects on people. Before we uh, dive into what Proverbs has to say about this wake, I want to recap for a moment uh, where we've been and uh, how Proverbs uh, gives us a framework to think about all these different topics we're going through, right? So our first week we got together, we talked about wisdom is a pathway that we pursue, uh, and it's not answers to all of life's questions, right? So God loves us. He wants us to flourish in this world as his children, and so he's given us a pathway. And so the Proverbs aren't, isn't going to tell you everything you need to say in any situation you come at, right? There's too many situations to deal with. But it's going to speak, what it's going to speak to is principles on how we ought to think about our words, right? And we know that whatever he says, it comes from a father who wants us to flourish in this world. We also saw that a wisdom is a pathway that's centered on our king and father. So it's not a self-help book of the Bible that you just try harder and try to live in light of these principles. No, he's saying that from the very beginning that what, if, what you revere in life is going to greatly influence how you receive this wisdom I want to give you. And so when we talk about words this morning, how we understand God and how we, what we revere in life greatly is going to greatly influence how we receive his wisdom this morning. It's going to be really critical. 
And then we also saw is that to walk this pathway, we've got to trust in his understanding and we've got to be teachable to him and others. And so really what that asks us to do as we come in this morning is to submit ourselves to God and say, God, I, I realize there's probably going to be a collision this morning in some ways between how you view words and how I view words. And it's saying, God, I want to be teachable to you. And that's the posture we come in. And so big picture, how I want us to, what else wants to see this morning. We're going to have three weeks on words, but this week we're going to talk about this. And you'll see it up on your screen and it's on your outline as well. That our words in God's world have great power to promote life and heal hurt. That our words in the world that God's created have great power. And the purpose is to bring healing and to bring life. So let's pray. Father, we come before you, and as each of us come in this morning, um, we're talkers, and that's we're made in your image. You're a God who speaks to us, and so you're a God who speaks to this creation, has revealed who you are, and you've made us relational, and we have a lot of words to say each and every day, and that's not a bad thing, God, but you call us to recognize the power of those words. And so, Father, I don't know how each of us are coming in, but I know we're all coming in broken, we're all coming in struggling, and uh, we're all coming in needy for you, just as we just sung. And so, God, would you meet us here? Would you do something that I or no one else has any power to do, which is to make your words come alive to us? We need you. Help us to see more of who you are and what you're like. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So when we say words here, we got to understand it just to get in the mind as we go forward that that's written, that's spoken, that's digital, that's even your tone of voice. All those have power in God's world, and that's what we're thinking about in light of this. If you were working through the Connect Group material this week, you probably looked at James 3, which was a part of our confession this morning, and it marveled how this small organ has so much power. And we see this all over the book of Proverbs. But we're going to look at two ways that our words have power in God's world. And the first one is this, is that our words have power to promote life or death. And so we see this in a few of our scriptures this morning. In 1821, it says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. And in 1011, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And in Proverbs 15:4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And so what I love about Proverbs is that there's so many images that Proverbs gives us. And the whole purpose of those images is to get our attention. So Proverbs could just say death and life from the power of the tongue. And it's a true statement and we ought to think about it. But then we get these images that put feet to those kind of words and ideas and give us, help us to be seeing the substance of what's ha- happening here. And we see that the, the idea of life and death here is holistic in nature. So I want to look at these two images here, the image of a fountain and the image of a tree. And I want us to think through them and then talk through what this means for our words. And so when you see the word fountain, most likely what comes to our mind is the, fa- is the water fountain in the hallway, right? And, or you might think of downtown Danville, Weisiger Park, the fountain they have there, or in front of the Norton Center, the fountain they have there. And our, our fountain, we think about more architectural in nature, or, you know, I got to get a drink of water, and that, that's kind of what a fountain is. Well, when we're reading the Bible, we've got to, it's great to think about images in light of our context, but we got to realize, what did they think about when they thought, think about a fountain? So when, when this was written, what would come to their mind? And for the ancient Near East, fountains had a different take. There was no civilization without them. When you come across a spring and you want to turn it into a fountain, you built a city there. Because without water, 
which was scarce in the ancient Near East, then you've got no water for people, you've got no water for your livestock, you've got no water for your crops. Like It was central to the flourishing of civilization in the ancient Near East, right? Then you think about a tree. Again, trees are nice, most, nice for most of us. Some of you in this room know a whole lot more about trees than I do, but for the vast majority of us, we think of trees and we think, yeah, I want a few mature trees in my yard, right, they, to shade certain areas. Uh, that's kind of the way we think about it. But again, what would, if you were in the ancient Near East, what would come to mind? Well, I have a feeling that they would think a little bit more uh, holistic about a tree, and they would see how critical it was, again, to life in their culture, right? So, Shade, fruit, animals, and even our scientific research now has revealed to us what they already knew, how dependent we are on trees, right? So they protect the soil and clean the air. They release oxygen that becomes the air we breathe. The food they produce feeds humanity. So you start putting these images together, and you, what, is, what, are, what are, was he saying about the power of our words in God's world? What are these images, images communicating to us? That words in God's world have the power to help people flourish and grow and function in a healthy way in the world, just like a tree and a fountain would do in the ancient Near East. Or they can starve, they can suffocate, or they can bring people down. Let's put some feet to this. Let's, let's think about how this plays out in life, right? There are two sets of three words that if they're said or not said, probably dictate most of the pain or joy in our life. Just two, two sets of three words. I love you and I'm sorry. We could pause right there and you could put us in a counselor's office and if there's any issues we have in the life, are most likely to come around one of those two sets of words, whether they were said or not said when they needed to be. Just three words. Such power we're seeing here. Let's think about this in examples in our life, right? Let's think about in the home. What does a parent consistently saying to their child, I love you in some form or fashion after success and a failure, consistently throughout their life? What does that do? And again, we're not talking about in the instant, but just in a consistent pattern over and over again, reassuring their kid of their favor regardless of their success or failure. That provides a, just a fertile soil for that child to grow strong, mature, and resilient in life, right? We see the power of words. Think about the workplace. I mean, just think of just the small thing of greeting a fellow employee with a smile, asking about their life while looking them in the eye of do. What does that do week after week for people? Just to honor them in that way. It cultivates a place where they can thrive and flourish, right? You thrive and flourish when people honor you as a person, when they look at you, when they speak to you, when they're interested in your life. What does an employee gossiping about another person or a constant complaining about the leadership doing a workplace? Well, it brings a spirit of discontent, right? Of frustration. And if you've been in a workplace like that, this, these, these, this phrasing will make sense to you. It literally suffocates the life in that workplace and people don't flourish. The power of words to bring life or death is real. I mean, we can think about homes in our homes. We can think about our workplaces and see that. This is the first thing we see about words in God's world, that our words have power to promote life and death. But we also see here that our words have the power to heal hurt or cause harm. Look at verse 12, 18. There is one whose rash words 
are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. In 1624, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Again, these images get our attention. They teach us about the healing power of words or harms they can do. So I want us to think about this image of sword thrusts. And I want to maybe compare it to a scalpel. So if you were to walk into a hospital for surgery, and before you go under anesthesia, you see the doctor pulling out a broadsword. What would be going in your mind in that minute? My guess is you'd be terrified, right? There'd be no sense of comfort in you. Because a broadsword is meant for one thing in this world, and that's to do harm in a war. A scalpel, though, under the hands of a, of a skilled surgeon, can be the key to whether you live or die. Right? It can promote healing even though it might cause a little wound. That's the picture there we're getting. We're wanting to see, he wants us to see what our words can do. And so with our 16,000 words a day, for some of those words, we can be swinging around a broadsword, right, recklessly. Or it can be a scalpel in which promotes healing in people's lives. Then you've got this image of a honeycomb. Well, we know honey for sweetness, and uh, I learned about what a hot toddy was when I came to, to Kentucky, right? You mix it with a little bourbon and lemon and, and secure for the sore throat. But again, in the ancient Near East, what was honey known for? Well, it's a couple things. One, it was known really as a delicacy. Now, we wouldn't consider it a delicacy because honey is everywhere. You can buy it anywhere, right? And also, we're used to sweet things in our life. But if you were in the ancient Near East and your diet was pretty bland, and honey was rare, it's a delicacy. It's one of those things that it's a treat. It brings joy to your life when you get to have it. But it was also known for its medicinal value. Now, I didn't know this, that, that honey has this anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, antibacterial properties. And so it literally was an, an ancient treatment for wounds or burns that were infected especially. The viscous nature, the thick nature of honey would just coat it, keep things moist. But there was, a, there was a certain element to that honey that it would literally had antibacterial properties to bring healing. And this has been scientifically shown to be true. And so again, you think about these things. What did this image then of sword and honey communicate to us about the power of our words? That words in God's world can bring a sweetness to life that literally is like a balm to a painful sore. That's the picture these images are wanting to put before us. Or they can be a tool for destruction, cutting you deep and leaving lifelong scars. Again, let's think about this in our home. There's no doubt that you, if you live with people, whether it be roommates or married or kids or whatever, that you're going to harm people in your home. Like that's just, that's going to happen. We are broken people, people living with broken people. We will do wrong. But what happens if in the face of that wrong, instead of our defensiveness rising up, instead of us trying to figure out all the reasons why we're right, we lead with I am sorry. And we lead with I am sorry with no qualifications to it. You know what I mean by qualifications. I'm sorry, but. Like that just ruins everything that you just said. What happens if we lead with that? What does that begin to bring about in that relationship? Healing. Really hard to have healing without those three words, with no qualification, right? What would repeated criticisms over and over again with a tone of frustration to a friend, to a child, a spouse do? What about the prolonged absence of or the sparing use of affirmation and validation in a relationship? 
It's not just our words. It's also the absence of those words. What if we're in a situation with a friend or a family, spouse or a parent, where there's this, those, those words are just any validation, any affirmation. It's very sparing, if at all. What does that do? I, th- I believe that those words or lack of them become swords that cut deep, cut real deep. It takes a long time to bring healing, if at all, to those kind of situations. Think about work. Each and every day, broken people enter the workplace. What, would, what does calling attention to and giving credit to an employee who's done something well do? What does that bring? What kind of honey is that to them? At all in life, they're, everything around them is breaking them down. But just to call attention and bring praise to a good job, eye to eye, what does that bring? But healing and health to them, right? You can think about social media. What are the wake of our posts? Are they like sword thrusts or thoughtful interactions that promote healing? Do they promote strife and incite anger? Or do they bring peace? Because our written words have power as well. And it, again, the Proverbs are an absolute statement that say everything that ever needs to be said about a subject. And so does this mean that we always have to agree with one another on every topic that we ever talk about? No. It, we, we looked last week that if you have true friendships, there's going to be times where we sharpen one another and wound one another out of love to see one another grow. But I don't want us to miss the collisioning happening here between how our world's under, our world understands, our culture understands words, and how God understands words. I think in our culture, on one hand, we think sometimes, oh, what does it really matter what we say? They're just words. Don't take them so seriously. And we usually think like that when we say something wrong to a person, right? We don't usually think that when it's the other way around. But if we're the, the one wronging someone and someone's hurt by our words, that's kind of the mindset that we can often have. And if it's taken wrongly, we think, well, it's just really not what I meant. It's their issue now. They really need to toughen up a little bit, right? That's, that's some of our mindset. Or, on the other hand, we can, we can think to ourselves about our words that we've got to be true to ourselves, And to be true to ourselves, we've got to say whatever we think or feel in the moment. And to not, do, to, to not do that would be violating myself in some way. How does that collide here with God's view of our words? Well, those, that view leads us to throw out our words without consequence and without any thought to their power and how they impact others. But what God's saying about our words here leads us instead to see that there is great purpose and weight to what we say. And it ought to lead us to pause and think about it. Paul Tripp, writing about words, actually it was, it was originally a, a sermon or a conference message on words, says this. It'll be up on your screen for you. The book of Proverbs is in ways a treatise on talk. I would summarize it this way. Words give life. Words bring death. You choose. What does this mean? It means you have never spoken a neutral word in your life. Your words have direction to them. If your words are moving in the life direction, they'll be words of encouragement, of hope, love, peace, unity, instruction, wisdom, and correction. But if your words are moving in a death direction, they'll be words of anger and malice and slander and jealousy and gossip and division and contempt and racism and violence and judgment and condemnation. Your words have direction to them. When you hear the word talk, you ought to hear something that is high and holy and significant and important. And so when we begin to understand 
the purpose and weight God has designed to words in this world, we're sobered. But I do think that when we begin to see that, we're eventually confronted with a problem. Because you and I, as we walk in this morning, this week is filled with lots of ways that we have not brought healing to people and have brought hurt to people through our words. This is part of humanity in our struggle, right? Well, the image of a fountain in a tree uh, in their holistic picture begin to make you think about where those come from. Both those images, the, the, the fountain is it's bubbling up from somewhere, right? The tree grows from, the, it's drawing nutrients from the soil and it comes up through the trunk and produces the fruit. Those images begin to get us to think about the source of our words. Well, Jesus makes it really explicitly clear that there is a source for our words. And if we want, to, if we want the wake of our words to be something different than hurt, and harm, we've got to think about the source. And so we see this in Luke 6, verses 43 and 45. It'll be on your screen for you. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of of the heart, his mouth speaks. Again, the abundance gives you the picture of a fountain overflowing. So I want you to think about, take those images of a fountain and a tree of life, and I want you to think about if those sources are contaminated, how does that lead us to view them, right? So would you want to drink water from a source that's right next to a nuclear waste reactor or nuclear waste dump? Would any of us want to drink, and no matter how thirsty you are, you see a bumbling uh, flow of a spring of water flowing right next to a nuclear waste dump. Would that attract you? Would you want to drink of that, right? Would you want to eat fruit from a tree that was planted in the soil of a former factory site with lots of toxic waste? You wouldn't. Nothing in you would want to eat that fruit. And the point is, when the source is infected, it's seen in the words and in the fruit. And that's the problem we have. That's the problem before us. And Because I think sometimes this is what happens in us. On one hand, we might all out dismiss the power of our words, and that's a whole other issue that we've got to wrestle with that the Proverbs was telling us about. But the other part is we just think we can fix our word problems by, by uh, maybe a little, a little skill and a little hard work. But skill and hard work, if we think that's going to fix our word problems, it's the idea I could just get a Kool-Aid packet and throw it in that fountain and it's going to be all right. Or get a little emergency, I could just throw it in that, pa- in that fountain and, you know, it's going to magically transform that water to be something healing and life-giving. Effort, important, is not the answer. Skill with our speech matters, but it doesn't change the source. The source is the issue. Paul Tripp says it like this again, and it'll be up on your screen. Word problems are heart problems. Word problems are not vocabulary problems. Word problems are not technique problems. Word problems in their essential form are heart problems. And so the solution goes all the way back to the beginning of Proverbs. We're not going to read it, but if you remember, what, what does Proverbs lead with? That the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is central to understanding wisdom and knowledge. And so we can't disassociate this, this idea of the power of words from the joyful awe of God. And what I mean by this is, is if we want the source of the words to change, then the source of what we revere has to change. 
There's going to be an image on the screen here next for you, just the idea of a heart. And there's something on the throne of your heart. And whatever's on the throne of your heart affects what comes out of your mouth. Both the words you use and the tone of that voice. And then that either gives life or harm. And that's what Proverbs wants us to realize, that it starts with what we revere. So let me just think about this practically here. If in my heart I I revere productivity, and then you enter my space and make me inefficient, if I revere productivity and you enter my space and make me inefficient, then what are you going to get when you enter that space? Whatever technique I want to apply, you're going to get sword thrusts, right? Because Not because how I use my words is wrong because the source is what I revere is off, right? But if in my heart I'm captured by the beauty of my king and father, then when interruptions come, they can be made with patience and kindness in my tone, right? If I revere my reputation and I screw up, then you better get ready to see my best defense and blame shifting because of what I revere is off. But if I'm captured by the love of my king and father, if that's what I revere, then in face of failure, can say I'm sorry because I'm less concerned about my reputation than the harm that I've done to you. You see the picture there? If the internal framework is off, the words are going to be off. It's not just a technique issue. This really matters. We cannot live out these problems unless our internal framework is rearranged because the problem's at its source. And so what does the gospel do for us? And why do we need the gospel moment by moment like we're talking about on Sunday mornings? Because the gospel comes in and it rearranges our internal framework. We see what Christ has done with all the wake of the sin and shame of our words. And we see that he's declared us righteous in his sight. And he's given us a new identity and a new power of the Holy Spirit. And that rearranging of our internal framework puts someone else on the throne. We begin to revere something bigger than ourselves. And what does that begin to do? It trickles down into our words and into how we speak. And so life becomes no longer centered on us. So that fountain is good now in our hearts. And so, yes, that happens once and for all when we become a Christian. But if you are a follower of Jesus, we're constantly needing a rearranging of our internal framework. We're constantly needing to be brought back to the joyful awe of our King and Father. And so we need to learn to how to live in line with this gospel moment by moment. And so in God's world, He's given great weight and purpose to our words to promote life and to heal hurt. So where do we go from here this morning? I want to give you two points of application. One is to be sobered and excited about the power of our words. The first there, to be sobered, that your your words are not neutral. So the presence is important or the absence of them can bring life or death. The presence or the absence of them. we got to see that. If we're not giving the right words in the right moment to the right people, it can be like sword thrusts. So the presence or absence can be healing or harm. And so we've got to ask, when we wrestle with this, I think part of what God wants us to do is to be sobered. What's the wake of our 16,000 words a day? What is it? Is it hurt? Is it healing? Is it superficiality? And this, listen, this doesn't mean that we just sputter off spiritual things all day long. That's not what I'm saying. You can't do that and function in everyday life. It's how are you speaking to people? 
That's what's, it, what's what's at stake here. What's the wake of our words? But we also ought to be excited because what this does tell us. But I mean, so when you look at James, it's mostly negative in its connotation of our words. But if you look at the Proverbs, it's always balanced on what our words can do, healing or harm. And so what it tells us is that God can use our words over time to bring life and healing to a broken world. And so what could the wake of our 16,000 words a day be? So there's a part to be convicted, to be sober, but there's a part of us to be excited about what God gives to our words, the purpose and weight he gives to them. So in our homes, in our, in our, with our neighbors, at our workplaces, in the classroom, what can be the wake of our words? It can be life and healing and flourishing. You literally, in your workplace or in your home, can set the trajectory of flourishing with how you speak. That's the power that God gives to your voice. No matter who you think you are and whether or not you think you talk great or not, that's the power he's giving to your words. And so we ought to be sobered and excited to that. But here's where I want to land and here's where I want to end is that we've got to walk away from here to be in awe of the power of our King and Father's words because the more we grasp his word, the more we'll live in awe of who he is. And the more we revere who he is, the more that will overflow in our words. And I want us to think for a moment about the power of God's words. By the power of his word, he created a world that we can flourish in. Think about that power. He literally spoke into an existence a world that you and I can eat, live, breathe, and enjoy creation. It's not dark and dreary outside this morning, is it? It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's a day that you want to thrive in. God, by the power of his word, has created a place for you to flourish. By the power of his words, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's worked faith in your heart. By the power of his words, if you're a follower of him, he has declared you righteous in his sight. So in the cosmic courtroom of God, no matter the fact that all of our words will condemn us before God, Right? We're going to stand in judgment. There's no defense we'll give to some of the words we've said in our life. They will bring condemnation before us. But by the power of his word, he declared you righteous. Which means the way he treats you is, is literally the way that he treats Jesus. By the power of his words. And by the power of his word, he's declared you as his son or daughter. So that he declares over you the same thing he declared over his own son in Matthew 3.16, this is my beloved son or this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's the picture there. That's the power of his word. And then he gives us his written word in which he speaks to us about the story of all of this in the world. And he gives us words that will bring conviction and be a scalpel to bring healing, but will also give life and encouragement. And so the, the point is this, that what I want you to walk away leaving this morning is the more you grasp the power of what God's word has done for you in this world, the more that softens you and pours over you and soaks into the soil of your heart and your life, the more out of that will grow a tongue that will be used to bless. Grace Church, let's be in awe of the power of his words so that we can in turn use our words wherever we come to bring life and healing. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And the challenging thing to stand up and talk about the power 
over words is the reality is that my words have often been used for harm and hurt in this world. And that's been the intent of them. And every one of us come before you. If there was ever a reason why we needed to sing, oh Jesus, we need you every hour, it was for this reason, God, because our words have often failed us. Not only do we need your righteousness declared of us because our track record is horrible, but we need you in the moment. We need to grasp the declaration you've made over us. We need to see the world, the words, the world that your words have created and the goodness that it was brought in our life. We need you. So would you meet each one of us? Would you help us to be sobered and excited? And if there's any one of us among us today that just that hasn't encountered your word in a powerful way, the word's changed them and brought a rearranging of their internal framework, I pray that you do it, that you would show them something about your goodness and your grace today, something about the glory of what it means to be a human being, that we have power in our words, but also that you want to bring them back into relationship with you. And would you draw us all back in to be in awe of who you are and what you've done for us? We need you. God, would you be gracious to us? In your name we pray. Amen.